Okay, passage number three. I was hoping to get this done by by lunch. We'll see if it happens. <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to be coming over these factors again and again and again in the course of the day. But okay, you start out with ignorance. From ignorance, as a requisition, comes fabrications. Fabrications, to, and we'll get into the detail in this in a minute, is the intentional element you're bringing both to your physical experience and to your mental experience. It's the intentional element. It's what you bring. In other words, ignorance, as I said earlier, is ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. If you're not looking at things in terms of stress, its cause, its cessation, and the path to cessation, you're looking, in term, you're looking at the present moment in other terms, i.e., say you're hungry, um, you want food, or other things people could want right now. You could anything you want based right now. It has nothing to do, it's basically what I want. Uh, the, the I becomes very big. And then your experience is going to be shaped by that sense of I, regardless of whether it's causing stress or not in the present moment. That's why it's ignorance. It's not that you don't know something, it's just your knowledge goes off in different terms. You're looking in terms of what I want, what I want to get, what I don't want, as opposed to well, what's actually causing suffering right now, what's not causing suffering right now. So based on this ignorance, of you're not looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths, you start fabricating things. You have your ideas, you have your perceptions, you have your notions. Even the way you breathe, we'll find out in a minute, is shaped by your intentions right now. You want a raise, your boss says no. You're going to breathe in a different way. It has nothing to do whether, with that, whether the breathing is causing stress or not. Because <laughs> you're so focused on wanting the raise and so angry at your, at your boss, you're not paying any attention to your body. And you're not paying attention. You know, and if you're skillful, you, say, you, know, you stop back a minute and you say, okay, this is a bad situation. I've got to figure some other way of doing of approaching this. But okay, even the way you breathe is affected by your intentional element. Based on the way you're fabricating your experience, then you're, that's, that, that conditions the way you're conscious at your different senses. You've probably had the experience when you're so angry you can't see straight. <laughs> I mean, this is a really blatant example, but it affects the way the things look at things. Um, what they say about a chocoholic is that you walk into somebody's house and you know where the chocolate is. <laughs> it's, it's what you're sensitive to. Actually, this gets a little bit further down. This comes in a name and form, but it's. <laughs> what was that article in the in, in the in the Onion? It says, "I'm a chocoholic only for alcohol." <laughs> Alcoholics. My brother's an alcoholic. He came to the monastery, and the first thing he noticed was where in Valley Center the bars are. I mean, he knew that before he knew anything else about Valley Center. I just noticed him picking up on where that was. It's it's kind of weird. Um, okay, from consciousness, then it conditions name and form. Now, name and form is probably the most complex factor among the factors. We're going to spend a lot of time on that this afternoon. But briefly, what name and form is, on the one hand, form is the physical experience of the body. And we've got, and traditionally that's divided into four elements. You've got earth, water, wind, and fire. And you can think of these in terms of types of experience or properties of the body. Earth stands for the solidity of the body. Fire stands for the warmth. Water stands for the coolness and cohesion in the body. And then 
Win stands for the movement of the breath or any kind of energy moving in the body. So the type of consciousness you have that's framed by ignorance is going to influence the way you experience the elements in your body. You're going to, probably you're going to experience them as, as mine. They're me. Because many times we use the body e- either as a means for getting what we want out of the experience or as the thing that we're trying to please, the thing we're trying to make comfortable. The same goes for name, which are the factors of the mind. Now, name includes, get your pens out, well, actually it's further down on the, on the next page. Name includes feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. Okay, you've got feeling, feelings of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Perceptions are the labels that you put on things. You see this glass, you say glass of water. You see this bowl, you say bowl. You see the clock, thanks the clock. It's just that, the words that you put on things to identify them, the way you label them. Labels of good and bad, labels of me and mine, these are all perception. The labels that we apply to things. Intention is the aim that you have for anything, what you're aiming at. This includes your motivation, includes the quality of the impulse that's pushing you to act, and also the, the, what you're acting toward. This is, this is, your, this is the point, place where you shape your experiences through your intentions, because you've got an aim. Most of us look at the present moment. In fact, our, present, our experience of the present moment, we'll get into this later on, has an element of intention in it already. Our experience of the present always has, already has a push towards the future. We look at the present not so much in and of itself, but you know, where is it leading? Where can I direct it? What influence can I have on it? That's intention. Contact, um, this is not explained in the text, but I think here contact means contact between these different events in the mind. You have an intention and, there's a, and there you have a perception and there's going to be contact between the perception and the feeling and the perception and the intention. This is how you know what's going on in your mind, how mental events influence each other. And then finally there's attention. It's the things that you pay attention to. What you focus on, what you choo- again, what you choose to focus on, what you choose not to focus on. And again, we'll get into this later in the day. As I said earlier, the chocoholic goes into the house, doesn't notice the beautiful Picasso on the wall, just notices, you know, where is the chocolate? <laughs> where do they keep the chocolate in this house? Um, there's a great cartoon in Farsight. It's uh, World War III has broken loose. There's you know, atomic bombs going off on the horizon, and there's people running around crazy, you know, with their tongues hanging out, and what they do in the far side. And there's there's a dog standing on the corner of the street, and he looks up, and there's a car driving past, and there's another dog in the car, and and the, the caption says, "Finally, something sparked Sparky's attention. <laughs> <laughs> he saw the other dog." <laughs> This is the way we are in life. Each of us pays attention to different things. And there's a question of how you pay attention is going to, as we'll see later, has an influence on whether you're going to suffer or not. What things you focus on, what things you don't focus on. Okay, that's name. Okay. 
Now, given you have name and form and consciousness, okay, having name and form, you've got the six sense media. This form of the body has eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and intellect. The intellect comes along with name. Okay, once you have the sixth sense meeting, okay, this is when you're finally getting to your senses. All this is prior to sensory experience. This is what you're bringing in to any sensory experience. You've got your ignorance, you've got your fabrications, you've got consciousness, you've got name and form. How we relate to your body, how we relate to events going on in the mind. The intentional element that you're bringing to the sensory experience. So then you've got the sixth sense media and then you've got contact. Okay, Given that you've got your eyes, then you have contact with forms. With the ears, you've got contact with sounds. And so on down the list. The sixth sense, of course, is the mind. You have contact. With, the mind has contact with ideas. Based on this contact, there comes feeling. Now, these feelings can be either pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful. Now, the question is, once you've got this pleasant or painful, you've already, as I said, you're coming from ignorance, you're coming from fabric, the intentional element that you're bringing into an experience. And primarily, our intentions are based towards wanting more pleasure. So, once you have a pleasant experience, your action tends to be, okay, you either want to hang on to it, or you want to maximize the pleasure. Or if it's an unpleasant, unpleasant feeling, okay, you want to push it away, you want to do away with it. If it's neither pleasant nor painful, you pay, basically usually don't pay attention to it. You're, you're looking for something else. So we've got these three kinds of reactions to the different feelings. And this is what brings about craving. Another word for craving here is thirst. You want more of something. Either you want more pleasure or you want to get rid of the pain you've got so you're, you're thirsty for the pleasure. And there are three different types of thirst, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Based on the thirst comes clinging. Now, clinging, or upadana here, can also mean the act of taking sustenance when you feed on something. So you see the connection here? You get thirsty, and then you feed. And our way of feeding, as we'll see in a minute, comes down to clinging to four different kinds of things. It's either to sensual desire, or to abuse or to precepts and practices, or to views of the self. Views of the self comes in here, of course, because it's if you want, if you say you want to maximize pleasure, you have to you have to have two ideas. One is the idea of I have the power to influence events, so it's me as agent or the sense of self as agent, and then there's going to be the self who's going to be experiencing this. The I who's the experiencer, the recipient, or the consumer of the pleasure, let's put it that way, as long as we're going to be talking about thirsting and feeding and everything. So you've got the producer and you've got the consumer, both in one. So this is how we cling to our ideas of self. Based on our ideas of self, there comes the process of becoming. The best way I can explain becoming here, it, it functions on several levels. It functions within the mind and it also functions in the world outside when you give rise to a new reality. Um, or a vision of reality. That's, you prob- you've had this experience many times when you fall asleep. When, this is the problem with this robe. Is it falls down. When you fall asleep, you'll be sort of drifting off, and then finally there's this picture of a world that appears in your mind. That's your first dream beginning. beginning okay? 
And if you go into the picture, you lose sense of your, you know, your bearings or where you are right now and just kind of go into that little vision. You've gone into your first dream. That's when you start to sleep. Now, the, the process of that picture is arising. That's what's called becoming. And then going into that is birth. You're laughing. <laughs> so this this is why this is why you learn about the process of becoming in meditation. You know, it, it happens. You this other world comes along and zip. You just jump in. It's like somebody driving up in a car and say, "Go, let's go." And you just jump in the car, and then you turn and say, well, who are you, by the way? Where are we going? <laughs> and as the Buddha says, this is a process that happens you know, moment to moment to moment in life, but it's also the process between death and rebirth. When you die, lots of visions are going to come up into the mind, having to do with things you did in the past, places you might go, and you, we tend to jump for one of them. This is the normal way that rebirth happens. And notice it is the question of you know, who takes rebirth, that doesn't come up, it's just there is the process of birth. And the best analogy I can give here is when you have one dream and then you have another dream and then you have another dream. Do you ever ask who goes from the first dream to the second dream? It's just one dream is followed by the next, followed by the next. And this is how the process happens. There's birth and then there's death and then there's another becoming and then there's more birth. And we're looking at it on that level. Now, once there's birth, then there's going to be aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. And as the Buddha says, that's the origination of this entire mass of suffering. So, let's go through these. Then he goes back, backwards, explaining each of the factors. Aging and death. Okay, whatever. Aging, decrepitude, brokenness, graying, wrinkling, decline of life force, weakening of the faculties of the various beings. And this is that group of beings. That's called aging. Whatever, deceasing, passing away, breaking up, disappearance, dying, death, completion of time, breakup of the aggregates, casting off of the body, interruption in the life faculty of the various beings, and this is that group that's called death. Okay, this is obviously referring to physical aging and death. Now, there is one sutta where he, the Buddha talks about you know, individual things in the world, and not beings, but just actually experiences also undergo aging and death as well. So he's talking on both time frames. Well, sort of say that the death of an experience as opposed to, and, and as well as the death of a body, the death of a being. The same principle applies to birth. Whatever birth, taking birth, descent, coming to be, coming forth, appearance of aggregates and acquisition of media, sense media of the various beings. In this or that group of beings, that's called birth. Okay, that's, that's physical birth that we're talking about here. But every... Meditation tradition, I know, also says we're talking about the birth of an identity in the mind. Becoming. There are these three level, three becoming. Sensual becoming, form becoming, and formless becoming. Okay, sensual becoming has to do with beings on the level of, of sensual, sensual desires, sensual pleasures, i.e. us. But also, the hell beings and many of the heavenly, be- heavenly realms are also sensual levels. Form becoming, and of course, this, these three levels also you can you can see them in the present moment in your mind. Form becoming is when you have a sense of just the pleasure of being in the body, of been fully inhabiting your body, of sensing the body from the inside. That's a level of form. 
or the sen- that sensing of any sort of object, a form appearing in the mind. It could be a, an image or a vision of something. That could also be on the level of form. Formless becoming is experiences in which there is no sense of form at all. My infinite space, infinite consciousness, a sense of nothingness. These are all formless levels of becoming. Clinging and sustenance. There are these four clingings. Sensuality, view clinging, precept and practice clinging, and doctrine of the self clinging. Sensuality clinging, you might be interested to know, doesn't deal with clinging to sensual objects. It means clinging to sensual desire. If you stop to think about it, which are you more attached to? Are you more attached to the objects of your desire or are you more attached to your desires? You're more attached to your desires. Because it's easy enough to replace one desired object with another desired object. Your first spouse doesn't work out, you get rid of him or her and get another one. If you were told that you could not have a desire for anybody, then you'd, then you'd really rebel. Right? So it's, it's defined here, sensuality clinging is clinging to your sensual desires. View clinging, of course, is holding on to a view, saying this has to be true, everything else is false. Precept and practice clinging. Um, certain things have to be done in a certain way. If you, Sometimes this is explained as ritualistic thinking or magical thinking. You follow a certain ritual and everything's going to be okay. Or if you basically, if you're a good boy, you've done all you have to do. If you're a good girl, you're all, you've done all you have to do. Clinging to just doing things in the proper way, or the right way, or whatever you think is the right way to do things, in and of itself as an end. View clinging is also that. Clinging to view as an end in and of itself. If you have this view, you're going to go to heaven. I mean, the Thirty Years' War was fought in Europe over this. You know, you have certain views of the Trinity, <laughs> you're going to go to heaven. If you have other views of the Trinity, you're going to go to hell. Somehow the view in and of itself made all the difference. Um, to get back to precept and practice clinging, my best illustration for this one, I, I don't know if I've told it to the people here yet, is the story of Conrad Lawrence and his goose. Do you know that story? Conrad Lawrence was a famous Austrian biologist and he happened to raise a goose one time. And I guess the goose lost its mother, so Conrad Lawrence became kind of its mother. And you have you know, you know, goslings imprint on people. So the Gosling imprinted on Conrad Lawrence, followed him around. This was all during the summer. Well, during the as fall started and Conrad Lawrence had to go back teaching again and it was getting cold outside, he realized he was going to have to bring the goose inside. The goose had never been inside in its life before. So he brings the goose. He, Instead of feeding him outside, he just kind of walks up the steps into his apartment one day and it goes into the building. And the way the building was arranged, there was this long hallway that ended in a window and then there was a stairway that went up kind of halfway down the hallway, went up to where his apartment was on the second floor. So the goose follows him inside and then gets inside and freaks out. It's never been in a closed space before. So it sees the window at the end of the hall and goes running to the window. Meanwhile, Conrad Lawrence has gone up the stairs. So the goose turns around and follows him up the stairs and feeds. So the goose gets used to the idea of being inside. However, from that point onward, every time the goose went into the house, it would go first to the window and then back up and then up the stairs. And with the passage of time, as it got hungry sometimes, it would, the trip to the window got shorter and shorter and shorter. Until finally it got so that he would go to that side of the staircase, shake his foot at the window and go up the stairs. 
Until one night, Conrad Lawrence came back from work late. The goose was hungry. So Conrad Lawrence opens the door and the goose goes zip up the stairs. Gets about halfway up the stairs, stops. Shivers all over. Then walks down the stairs, over the window, comes back and goes up the stairs. That's practice and precept clinging. (laughs) When you find yourself falling for ritual thinking, remember you're listening to your inner goose. Okay. Okay, now that we're awake. um, Doctrine of self-clinging. You you know what this is. This is the primary clinging. Your idea of who you are. What your true nature is. This can be you decide that your true nature is basically good, that you've got Buddha nature. You may, may decide that your true nature is basically bad. You need some help from outside. Um, you can identify with your body, you can identify with your feelings, you can identify with the cosmos. Any of these things qualifies as a doctrine of self-clinging. Now this comes from craving, as we said earlier, or it's conditioned by craving. And here you've got the six kinds of craving, or basically craving for any of the objects of the senses. Same goes for feeling, the same goes for contact. This is all, these are all classified by the six senses. So feeling is six classes. Feeling born of eye contact, born of ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, etc. There's contact at the six senses and there's the six sense media. The purpose of all this is, is to give you a framework to analyze these things. When you have a particular craving, ask yourself, okay, is this craving for sight, sound, smells, taste, or tactile sensations? Get away from the question, is this my craving, is whatever, just classify it in an impersonal term. What kind of contact does it come from? Where is the source of that contact? And this brings you back to the, the big issues in dependent co-arising, which start down with name and form. As I said earlier, feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. That's name. Okay, you're, this is what you're bringing to your experience of the six senses. You've got certain ideas about what's important, what's not important. That's going to determine what you pay attention to. Based on that, you have certain intentions. You also have perceptions that have come in here as well. The perceptions, the labels that you have for things. And if you walked into this room and you said, you know, a bunch of commies, okay, the way you, wanted, you were going to interpret, you were going to interact with the people in this room would be very different from if you say, okay, fellow human beings. Okay? Or if you walked into the room and said, a bunch of Republicans, a bunch of Democrats, would be very different than if you walked in and you said, okay, th- you know, these, are, these are my fellow human beings. The, you know, the labels that you apply to groups of people, the labels that you apply to things, are going to determine your intentions toward them what you think should be done about them. How you feel that you should re- react with them. Okay. That's perception. Okay. How, and that perception has a role to play in determining your intentions. And then there are feelings of pleasure or pain, neither pleasure nor pain. And then there's contact among all these things. And as I said earlier, form is the four great elements. And the form is dependent on them. The elements, again, are earth, water, wind, and fire. Sometimes space is added to 
those elements as well. Consciousness, okay, consciousness again is classified according to the sense door where it's directed. Now it's not that eye consciousness and ear consciousness are different kinds of things, as the Buddha once said. It's like building a fire out of different kinds of woods. The fire is all fire. We're simply we're trying to classify it in a different way from saying this is my consciousness. The Buddha is giving you another framework for looking at it to sort of depersonalize it, see it simply as a process, as a series of events. Fabrications. There are these three, three fabrications, bodily fabrications, verbal, and mental. The bodily fabrication here is your in-and-out breath. Remember earlier we mentioned that fabrication is the intentional element that you're bringing to your experience. Okay? The breath is where your intentions of the mind have an impact on the body. And say a thought comes into your mind, it's going to change the way you breathe immediately. And that's what's going to get the, the hormones churning. Or not churning, depending on how, you, how you're breathing, or what, what the particular thought is. It's through the breath that you shape your experience, it's that you have an intentional element in shaping your experience in the body. Verbal fabrications are directive thought and evaluation. The Pali term here is vitaka, V-I-T-A-K-K-A. V-I-T-A-K-K-A. And vichara, V-I-C-A-R-A. These are called verbal fabrications because any speech that you have, you start out by thinking of something and then having a comment on it. You think about the clock and you comment and you say, oh my gosh, it's getting close to, to lunch. We haven't even finished this one passage. Um, <laughs> okay. There's the topic and then there's the comment. You look at the ball and you say, nice ball. Bowl is your directed thought and the comment, nice bowl, that's your evaluation. I mean, this is how we create sentences in the mind. We think about something and then we evaluate it, pass a judgment on it. If you want to stop judgmental thinking, you have to stop using language. I mean, language has built-in judgments. So what you have to learn to do is use them skillfully. And then finally, mental fabrications are feeling and perception. Now you notice already we've got several feedback loops. So we talked about intention, which is fabrication. We talk about perception and feeling, okay? They come in here as well. So they both they come under name and they also come under fabrication. And then finally, ignorance. Not knowing in terms of stress. Notice that in terms of. We're talking about the Four Noble Truths here. It's not seeing things in these terms. That's the ignorance. You may know about the Four Noble Truths, but you don't apply them to your experience. It's still ignorance. You take them as categories and you look at them. Look at everything you experience in terms of stress, the cause of stress, cessation, and the path leading to the cessation of stress. And then, as I said earlier, there's tests that go with each of these categories, which we will talk about after lunch. So that gets us through the sort of the basic definition of the terms in dependent core arising. So again, you see the general pattern is you're bringing an awful lot just to your sensory experience. A lot of intentional elements, a lot of attitudes, the way you pay attention to things. This is going to determine what shapes your experience in terms of the senses and whether you're going to suffer from it or not. So as you can, as, as you can imagine, 
most of the training of the mind focuses on what you're bringing to the experience, which is what we'll be focusing on during this afternoon. Now, do you have any question on any of these, any of these links? On the name part of name and form, mm-hmm. um, contact is mentioned there. It's also two above there. Is this yeah. the same poly word? Also? It's, the same, it's the same poly word. I think they're talking about two different kinds of contact. Okay. And what's the poly word for attention? Attention, manasikara. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I had two questions. One was, could you just give an um, everyday example of the, uh, the birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, as it relates to um, just in, not to the physical life form, but just a, a given moment? Okay. Um, say you have a craving for ice cream. A craving for ice cream. Then you cling to that craving. You really want that ice cream. You create an identity around it. You start thinking about how am I going to go down and get that ice cream? Okay, you're, you're, you visualize how you can make this happen. That's the becoming. And then the birth is you start playing the role within that particular, that particular intention there. You start doing. You start. You become the person who goes down and yeah. You you, you say like you know, let's say it's. Um, you have the choice. Either you can become the person who's going to go down and get the ice cream, or you're going to be the person who's going to stay home and you know, do some work you've got to do. And you, you see this most clearly when you've got a conflict that there's two or three different yous all vying for, for attention. And then can you take it on further to the aging and death, sorrow, lamentation? Okay. Then you've had the ice cream. And you go back home and you say, now, was that worth it? And for a few minutes you say, that was worth it, yeah. And then after a while, I'll say, what was that all about? So it's not really, you're not really lamenting, okay? But that that particular identity just stops. And then you replace it with another identity. And we, usually this happens unexaminedly because, you know, one, on the one hand, you know, the lamentation, sorrow, distress, and despair is pretty minor. But there are other cases where you take on an identity, i.e., somebody's husband and it doesn't work out. And you've got to, you've got to get a divorce. And then you know, the lamentation and distress and despair is really, really that's huge around the, the identity that you'd build up around being that person's husband. So it's a little tiny desire, so it's a little bit of stress, but you know, big desires that become a big part of your identity, and then, there's a lot, then when it ends, or even if, the, you know, even if there's a great marriage, one of you dies, so, say your partner dies, and then you've got this big, all the lamentation that goes around that. And a lot of that is, there's an interesting passage where um, Sariputta makes a comment that he doesn't see anything in the world that, whose change would make him feel any sorrow or grief. And Ananda, always loyal to the Buddha, says, well, wait a minute, what happens if anything happens to the Buddha? Aren't you going to get upset? And Sariputta would say, well, I'd, I'd say that it, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that such a great, helpful human being has had to pass away, but that's the way things are. And, and Ananda's comment on this is that you know, you have no conceit. I mean, the basis for grief is usually how much I am suffering from that person's death or sickness or whatever, which makes you realize how much of an identity you built around that relationship. 
So when the relationship ends, then you go through this process of aging, illness, death of the relationship and the sorrow and lamentation that goes along with it. Great, thanks. And one other, very quickly, the whole thing you're talking about, perception of, is this room filled with commies or Republicans? or How did you fit, where does that fit into the... Perception. And which part? It's in name and form. Just in the name and form, okay, great. But you find also that it's there in perception and in in fabrication as well. Okay, great. It's like your perception. We have a double check on our perceptions. There's one level of perception, then it's followed by another one. Do I I agree with these perceptions? Because some of them just kind of rise up unbidden. And then you decide which ones you're going to go with and which ones you're not. Thanks. So it's very complex. Question here. I'm going to ask to deepen our awareness of our intentions and mm-hmm. I imagine to refine the intentions right. mm-hmm. toward the wholesome end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you mentioned that uh, in the Theravada conception of enlightenment, uh, the Buddha had no intention. At that point, right. Can you say something about that? Uh, oh, that's, that's a big one. I, you basically what you're doing is not the best time. This is a, this is a great time because we're about to eat. Um, <laughs> as we talk about refining your intentions to get more and more wholesome, you realize that you get to the point finally where you realize that even your wholesome intentions are causing stress, and you've got to go beyond those. So how do you do that? So first you get more and more and more refined, and then you realize, well, this is, this is just taking the same process, but it's, you haven't gotten out. Then you realize, okay, you know, what is intention? And this is where you sort of turn around and look at this driving force that keeps you going, that keeps you shaping your experience. This compulsion we have that we're constantly shaping our experience. And you say, and then you figure out how to drop that without replacing it with a new intention. That's, that's the real skill of awakening. Now, this doesn't mean that after his awakening, the Buddha did not have intentions, but he did relate in a different way to them. If there was a need for the intention, he would bring it up. If there's no need, he would drop it. Now, given the fact that, as I said, your experience of the present moment is composed of intention, what this means is that when the intention really drops, you have no experience of the present. There's no sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations, eye, ear, nose, tone, body, mind. There's nothing, none of that there. And this is what's called you know, opening to the death. Well, this is an experience of the deathless. What, what happens then if someone comes up to you and says, Hi. At that point, at that point you're, you're deep in meditation. <laughs> ah. yeah. Now, the fact that you're interacting with other people, you've had the intention to interact. So you're out to interact with them. But they do talk about monks and nuns being in sort of the cessation of perception and feeling. You know, you, and you know, make big loud noises around them and they don't hear it. They're out for that. It's a literal death. Yeah, it's just totally not getting, it's totally not engaged with your sensory experiences. Now the question is, why would anybody want to go there? And then the answer is, we see it, you like it. <laughs> well, well, no, but it's no, it's and this is this is this is the motivation for why you're on the path. Because there's a happiness that's not dependent on conditions. Now, as long as that person continues to live and, and interact with other people, they're always still in touch with that other dimension, which brings a whole different dynamic into how you relate to your senses, how you relate to other people, because you're not hungering for anything out there. 
can't that be responsive as well? It's responsive and everything, but it's not hungering, you know? Which is important, because for most of us, there still is this element of feeding off each other, one way or another. When you laugh, I get a little sort of, okay, I'll continue talking, kind of question. Um, yes. So then, if there's no intention, there's no I. Okay, there's, the question is, if there's no intention, there's no, at that particular moment, there's no I at all. Yeah. Big or small. There's no small self, there's no big self. Because again, you notice that the idea of self comes in here as, as a strategy. You create your sense of self so you can figure out how can I manage this, this situation so that I can get more pleasure out of it. And then by that way you've defined who you are as the producer and also who you are as a consumer. Because given the condition nature of any kind of pleasure or happiness you get out of sense or experience, it requires, requires strategies. But with unconditioned happiness, you don't require any strategies at all. There's nothing you have to do. There's no intention involved. You don't need to do anything to keep it going because it's there. And when you no longer have any function, you drop the idea of I. Um, I'm hearing some uh, difference, or I guess what I would like to ask about is much of this is talking about an individual mind and you know the, the particular mind that I'm aware of, for example. Um, and yet, as a related system, there are many minds that are always interacting. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, I'm, I'm trying to unravel my own experience or my this particular life stream mm-hmm. compared to the fact that I'm swimming in a sea of many, many life streams? I'm having a little trouble with self versus total. Well, it, the Buddha really is talking about this is something each person does for him or herself. Um, that your, your experience of other beings out there, when you come right down to it, there's always that, you know, what is it called, solipsism, solipsist questioning. Does there, do people really exist out there? Do you really exist or are you figuring my imagination? And you can say all you want. Oh, I really exist, I know, because I'm, I'm here. But for me, that you're, you're here is over there. And so... Basically, what can you do is, you know where the suffering is, you can work on lessening the causes of suffering. And it's not just a selfish thing, because it turns out that the less suffering you're causing yourself through this process, the less of a burden you're placing on other people. But there's no one person who can take everybody along with them. Because we're each suffering because of our own lack of skill, and I can't make you skillful. You can't make me skillful. It depends on each of us to have the have the intention that okay, I stop blaming all my problems on the people out there or the situation out there, and look at what I'm doing to contribute to the problem. Learn how to take care of that problem first, and then if I have time afterwards, we can help other people. But it's really each person for him or herself kind of thing. Is there skill in having the intention to help others? Definitely, yes. Why? Because if, uh, if your happiness depends on other people's suffering, they're not going to stand for it. Yes. That's, 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 in fact, the Buddha's explanation for compassion starts right there, realizing that you, know, you love yourself, I love myself. If my happiness depends on your being, your being miserable, you're not going to stand for it. So I've got to take you into consideration. 
and then the more I can sense your feelings, the, the, the better it's going to work. So it teaches you sensitivity as well. But there's no, there's no. In the, in the early teachings, the Buddha never claimed that he could take anybody along with him. There's always a question of you know, who's ready to hear the teachings. He'd be happy to teach that person. Someone once asked, you know, is the whole world going to go to awakening? Is half the world? And the Buddha refused to answer. And good old Ananda sees, okay, this person's going to go away and is going to be upset like these other people who don't get answers from the Buddha. So he takes the person aside and he gives an analogy. He says, suppose there's a, a fortress and you've got a guardian at the gate. And the guardian goes and he walks around the fortress wall and he sees that there's not an, even the slightest little hole in the fortress wall, not even big enough for a cat to get through. Then he knows, okay, there's only the one gate. Anybody who's going to go into the gate, into the fortress, has to go through this gate. Okay, in the same way, the Buddha lets, sets forth the teaching says, anybody who's going to put an end to suffering is going to have to do it this way. Now the question of how many people are going to do it, the whole world, half the world, that's, nobody can know that. Because we're each suffering not because I haven't saved you, but because each of us has... Is, react, is reacting or bringing unskillful attitudes to experience. Which means each of us has to work on our own unskillful attitudes. 